Well, church, we are continuing our, in our series this morning uh, through the first part of the book of Revelation. And we have been exploring and looking at these letters that Jesus has sent to these seven churches in the western part of Turkey. And we have been looking at the very different dynamics that, have, uh, that these churches have been facing. And a few weeks ago, as I shared in one of the messages that as we were looking at um, these letters, is that every church seemed to have an issue with it. Every church that while Jesus could praise this church, every church seemed to have some sort of issue with it. And a few weeks ago, I shared with you that there is no perfect church. None. There is no perfect church that ever exists on this planet. And there will never be a perfect church that will exist on this planet. But it doesn't stop us from trying. And it shouldn't stop us. We ought to, to strive for that ideal that Jesus has for us. But we also know that we are hindered by sin, that we are hindered by imperfection, that we are hindered by a world that is broken. And so it is impossible, but yet it, we are still inspired to do so. This morning, we're going to take a look at another church. And here's the irony about this thing, is that out of all of the issues that we've explored in these other churches, we're going to come to a church today in which Jesus, at least, at least what he writes to, he has no issue with this church. None. But what is so unique is that out of all of the seven letters, is that there are patterns to every single letter. In other words, there is phraseology that is almost exactly the same in every single letter that Jesus shares with these seven churches. For instance, one phrase that we see and we have seen in almost all of the letters that we have looked at is Jesus almost always ends it by saying, let him who has ears hear. Let him who has ears hear. In other words, that unbelievable you know, finality of, of just like pleading to these churches, listen to what I am saying, church. Now, here's another phrase that I think is also in every single letter, including the one we'll see today, and it's this, to him who overcomes. To him who overcomes. In other words, if we know that there is no perfect church out there, right? Every church has issues. Here's another dynamic of church. If we didn't already need to know this, I'm going to share it anyways. And it's this, being the church can be incredibly difficult. Being the church can be incredibly challenging. Actually gathering together as a people who come to and worship Jesus Christ, that we think while incredibly simple, is in many ways incredibly challenging. There are all sorts of things that make gathering of God's people absolutely difficult at times and challenging at times. It might be different for us here in Tucson, Arizona versus someone in China who gathers versus someone in Africa who gathers versus someone in the Northeast who gathers or the southern part of this country who gathers. We all have unique challenges that make it difficult for us to be the church. And I believe that this is so difficult in some ways for us to be the church that there are many Christians, and none of you here today because you're all here, okay? So this is not in any way an indictment to any of us in this room. Or for those of you who are joining us online, praise you all for being here. Um, it's this, is that there are many Christians who simply just skip the idea of going to church, who simply skip the idea of not being a part of the church, who simply just say, you know what, I know Jesus, I don't need the church. Now, I don't know about you, but as a pastor, and let me just be honest with you, in case you haven't figured it out already, I'm very biased. Okay, I love it when someone comes up to me and says, Pastor, should I tie to the church? Really? 
You want to ask me if you should tithe to the church. What do you think I'm going to tell you? First of all, I'm going to tell you, no, don't tithe. Give instead. Okay? I wrote a whole article about this, all that kind of stuff. In other words, tithing is a legalistic thing. You know, give out of your heart. What, whatever do you want to give out of you and Jesus, give. But you know what I'm going to tell you? I'm going to tell you, give. I am going to tell you to give. If you're looking for a reason to not give to a church, don't come to the pastor. Just don't do it. Okay? He or she is going to tell you, you know what? Give. You ought to give. And, they, and we may throw in flowery language like, it's your duty to give. And in fact, it is your responsibility to give. In fact, Scripture tells you to give. In fact, not only will we not tell you to give, or tell you to rather you should give, but we will actually back it up with Scripture. Jesus says this. Right? So I'm biased about this. I am biased about the church. And I'm just being honest with you. Any Christian who I encounter, and I've encountered, you know, many, if you will, that have rejected the idea of going to church, and they're looking for affirmation from me that that's okay. You're not going to get that from me. If anything, you're just going to get silence. Okay. How about them Packers? You know, let's change the subject kind of thing. I mean, that's, that's what you're going to get from me. In other words, I, and this was something that was kind of really brought up to me early on, even when I was a freshman in college and I took my first religion course. And the professor there, she said, she really, I mean, it was really good. And she just kind of laid it out. How do you square being a Christian and not going to church? I, I, you know, address that to the Apostle Paul. I mean, in other words, Paul's assumption was that as a Christ follower, you would gather with other Christ followers in this entity, this organism, this body as he framed it, as, that makes up the church. In other words, I think one could make a really strong case, not only with the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, but in scriptures in general, is that there is a really, really strong case to be made that if you are truly a Christian and desire to follow Jesus, you will be connected to a church. Yeah, but I don't like church. Church is not a fun place for me. Church is a dangerous place. Uh, church has hurt me, and I get all that. Yes, the church hurts at times. Yes, the church can do damage. Yes, the church can do awful things in the name of Jesus Christ. Yes, we have a history of that. But let's not fool ourselves. We as individual Christians can do the very same thing. We don't have to be a church to do awful things. We can do that all on our own. We can. We can just do all that all on our own. But let me just say this, is that being part of a church is incredibly crucial to being a Christian and in the life of a Christian. In other words, I don't know how a Christian could say, I love Jesus, I just hate his wife. Because the church is the bride of Christ. I love Jesus, I just hate his wife. I don't know about you, but I, I, that wouldn't sit well with me. You know? Um, and I, I, I'm sure it doesn't sit well with Jesus. And so, brothers and sisters, I want you to hear this is that being the church is difficult. And I get it. I may not be sharing anything new. I understand that sometimes pointing out the obvious isn't very helpful, right? It's kind of like describing the water to a person who's drowning. Just, okay, thanks. I like those commercials with Captain Obvious. Have you seen those commercials? Right? The guy just shows up and he just states the obvious. Thank you very much, Captain Obvious. Right? Uh, you know, it's just, it's just how it is. But let me just say this is that, yes, 
being the church is difficult. Being in or a part of a church is, can be difficult. It is not always easy, all right? Families are not always easy, and certainly because of that, we are a family under Jesus Christ. We are the church under Jesus Christ. We also struggle. We also have conflict. We also don't always get it right. And so what I want us to look at today is that this church that we are going to look at in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, amen? Except, you know what? This city wasn't very loving to this church, as we're going to see, or at least some parts of the city was not very loving to this church that we're going to see. But here's the thing, is that Jesus is addressing this church, which is facing difficulty, not only internally, but we, we don't know that for sure, but certainly externally, this church is facing some hard times. And perhaps because of that, this church was ready to give up. This church was finally maybe on the cusp of throwing in the towel. This church was maybe almost to the point of saying, you know what, this is just too hard, I'm out. I'm out. Let someone else be the church here, because this is just too tough. And, and I want us to see here today what Jesus says to this church to encourage this church to not give up, but rather to keep pressing on. And this morning, I think, for those of us here at Summit Ridge, brothers and sisters, this is a message I think we need to hear. This is a message that I think every single one of us needs to hear today. The same message that Jesus gave to this church in Philadelphia, we need to hear this message today. And it is so important for us to hear it. Now, we're going to break down this message in a, a, a kind of a succinct phrase that I think kind of sums up what Jesus is saying. But we will dive deeper into what Jesus is saying as we look at this phrase to keep in mind. Because I think this phrase, at least for me, and I hope it will be for you, is really essentially what Jesus may be saying in these passages beginning in verse 7 of Revelation chapter 3, which is where we're going to land today. So I want us to navigate using this kind of overall pass, uh, this overall kind of statement, if you will, to understand what is it that Jesus shared with this church in Philadelphia that I think today we here at Summit Ridge need to hear, that we at Summit Ridge need to embrace, that we at Summit Ridge need to maybe take to heart. And in doing so, maybe we can make the shift if you've ever felt that, you know what, being the church is just really tough. Let's just throw in the towel. Let's be done with this thing. Let's give up. Maybe you are also on the cusp of saying, you know what, church, this church thing, you know what, I'd rather just stay home. I'd rather just stay home. I can catch it on TV, can watch the football game afterwards. It's really quite a nice life. I can stay in my PJs. I get it. I get it. If you are there or tempted in any, any way to maybe just kind of check yourself out individually, out of this church or a church in general, I just hope today you will receive this message that Jesus shared with the church in Philadelphia and that I think we need to hear today. Amen? So here's the statement, first part of it, and it's this. How we make this shift from giving up to pressing on, it's this. Jesus, in the end, gets the final say. I'll explain this, but for right now, just hang on to that statement. Jesus, in the end, gets the final say. Here's what I mean by this. Let's take a look at Revelation chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. And I'm just going to read verses 7 and 8 right now. And it says this. To the angel 
of the church in Philadelphia. Remember, we have defined angel most likely that is probably the pastor or leader of this church. It could have been an angel as well, but most theologians believe that this is probably the pastor or the leader at the church. He who is holy, that being he, Jesus, who is holy, who is true, and who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says the following, I know your deeds, Behold, I have put you before, before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have followed my word and have not denied my name. Now we know that Jesus approaches each church in a very unique way. And this way it's so interesting that Jesus says, in, in, as he starts right out, I am the one who is holy, I am the one who is true, and this phrase is, I have the key of David. What is he referring to? What is he referring to, the key of David? It's very simple, really. The key of David means simply that he holds the keys to the kingdom of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the kingdom that is coming, the kingdom that God has always been wanting to inaugurate on this earth and in general in his creation. That is what that means. He holds the keys. In other words, he holds the keys, and because of that, the door is open. And by that, he means salvation is possible for everyone. In other words, right now, salvation, people have the opportunity to become a part of this kingdom. The door is open. And by the way, Jesus says this, no one can shut it except him. And by the way, when it does shut, and when he does shut it, that goes from salvation to judgment. No one can get back in. No one could get in. So, the, so the, the key of David is really this idea of authority. Jesus has ultimate authority. Jesus has, can decide who's in and who's out. That is Jesus' authority. And he says that to this church. Now, let me just describe a little bit about this church, and then we'll go on as to why he says what he has just said about him holding the keys. And it's this. This church was located in Philadelphia. It's about uh, a city in western Turkey, a little bit, about 30, 35 miles uh, south, southeast of uh, Sardis, which is the church we looked at last week. Sardis, as we learned about last week, was destroyed at one time by an earthquake. Well, Philadelphia, by the way, is built or was built basically on the fault line that this church in Sardis and the city in Sardis suffered that devastating earthquake. Now, not only that, Philadelphia, because it was built on a fault line, also experienced its fair shares of earthquakes. In fact, some historians have said this about the city of Philadelphia. Philadelphia was not even in its walls secure, but they are daily shaken and split in some degree. The people continually pay attention to earth tremors and plan their buildings with this factor in mind. And later, beyond the Lydians are the Myasians and the city of Philadelphia, full of earthquakes, for the walls never cease being cracked and different parts of the city are constantly suffering damage. That is why the actual town has few inhabitants, but the majority live as farmers in the countryside, as they have fertile land. But one is surprised, even at the few, that they are so fond of the place which they have such insecure dwellings, and one would be even more amazed at those who founded it. In other words, you didn't want to live in this city. 
This city suffered so much from earthquakes that it was better to live in the countryside. But there were those who lived in the city. Perhaps there were inhabitants, and perhaps the church itself was in this city. And so every, it was a regular occurrence that this church could possibly suffer some sort of damage from earthquakes. So you had that kind of bearing down on this church. Not only that, this church was a small church. It wasn't a very big church. In fact, maybe, perhaps, out of all the seven churches that Jesus addresses, it was probably, in many ways, the smallest of all the churches. In other words, it didn't have a large group meeting. It didn't have a lot of wealth. It didn't have a lot of resources. It didn't have a lot of talent or giftedness, as maybe the other six churches did. And so this church not only had to suffer from the fact that it had you know, earthquakes all the time and it could be damaged, all this kind of stuff that they probably couldn't meet, or if they did, it might be a, a, a challenge to do so at times. But not only that, when they did meet, they realized and looked around and said, you know what, we're not, we're not a very big gathering. We don't have a whole lot of us in this city. It's a really, really tough thing. Really, really tough. And so Jesus speaks these words and says to them, by the way, church, I want you to know something. I want you to know that I have the final say. That at the end of the day, I am the one who says who is in and who is out. I am the final judge and arbiter. No one else holds this position. Okay? No one else has that authority. Only I do. Now, Jesus says this because of the following, and this, ends our, this is our second statement. Jesus, in the end, gets the final say. Here's the second part of that statement. Not those who believe they get their own way. Jesus, in the end, has the final say. Not those who believe they get their own way. Jesus says this in verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. If there is a title you never want, can I just be honest? If there is a title you never want Jesus calling you, perhaps this is a title you don't want at all. Synagogue of Satan is rather strong, don't you think? He calls it that. He says this. <laughs> Let's go on. Why does he call it the synagogue of Satan? Because he says this. Who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down before your feet and make them know that I have loved you. The reason why Jesus says at the beginning, hey, guess what, church? The reason why I have the final say is because he knew that what was going on to this poor little church, not only did they have to deal with earthquakes, not only were they just small and perhaps saw themselves as insignificant, but they had this synagogue made up of Jewish people who were telling them essentially, hey, by the way, you're not Jews, and because you're not Jews, you are not a part of the kingdom of God. You are out. You are not in. In other words, these, these, this synagogue, these Jewish people who were there, were telling this church that, guess what? You are judged. They were judging them. And Jesus flips the script on them and says, guess what? There will come a day when this synagogue will bow to you because I will show this synagogue that I have loved you all along. What was the problem with the synagogue? Why would they do such a thing? Why could they even think that they could judge another church or say to another group of people, you are out and we are in? 
Well, there's lots of reasons why that was possible. Obviously, we know that from Scripture, from the very earliest time of Genesis, we know that God chose the Jewish people to be his chosen people. Does anybody know why, by the way? Anybody have an answer to that? Would you say it even if you did? Right? We don't know why. But we do know this. God chose the smallest of the people in terms of numbers. He chose what was considered to be the most insignificant group at that time. That's who he chose. And he said to these groups of, this group of people, be, you know, through you, I will bless you so that you may be a blessed thing. Now, here's the problem with that. Is that, yes, God still chooses the people of, of Israel or the Jewish people today. They are still the chosen people. Okay? However, that doesn't make every single individual Jew chosen. It's a porous border. In other words, just because you're a Jewish person doesn't make you saved. Any more than uh, you know, a person who is Catholic, who doesn't attend the Catholic Church, is Catholic. There's no guarantee. Okay? Cultural um, you know, identity is not what saves you. Okay? At all. It's just not. And so yet this Jewish church, or this synagogue rather, probably believing and understandably so that they were the chosen ones. Um, you know, they looked at this church who was following Jesus and said to them, yeah, you're not part of the kingdom of God. You're out. Now, there's a second reason I think that this synagogue might have done this. And I think this also explains us as the church in general, certainly here in America, but also holistically, is I think most churches and certainly almost every single denomination suffers from this syndrome. And it's called the one true church syndrome. Have you heard of it? One true church syndrome. In other words, it is the belief that you or we are the one true church. That we are the ones who have it all together. That we are the ones that Jesus had talked about, his church, his bride, all along. That we are the ones that have it all together. Right? And by the way, this syndrome showed up very early on. Right after the apostles had died, and all of a sudden rose the Catholic Church. And as soon as that happened, there was another brand called the Eastern Orthodox Church that said, oh no, you are not the one true church, we are. And they broke off to go and do what they believed was the one true church way of, be, of behaving, right? And then from there, Martin Luther comes along in, the, in, our, in our vein here and says, oh no, Catholic Church, you're not the one true church, we are. And he breaks off. And it goes on and on and on. Do you see the pattern? And by the way, for those of us here at Summit Ridge, we know that we are Anabaptists in our theology. We know that we are brethren in our identity. We are also not uh, immune from this syndrome. Do you know why we broke off? Oh, because the Lutherans don't have it together. We're the one true church. And do you know why the Amish broke off from us? Because they looked at us and said, oh no, you're not the one true church. We are. You want to know what the church looks like? Look at us. Look at us. And so we go along and we break down everything because we believe we are the one true church. Right? I mean, and we would do this even on individual levels as Christians, right? How many of you, don't raise your hands, how many of you have ever been in conversations with someone from another church and you're talking to this person and they're complaining about their church? And they're saying things like, well, we don't like the music there and we like hymns better and you might be saying, well, why don't you come to my church? We do hymns, because that's what Jesus liked, right? You know, and I don't like my church right now because they have a full-on band, and I, I prefer the keyboard or the organ. Well, why don't you come to my church, because we do it the way it was done 
in the book of Acts, right? The one true church. Uh, you know, I don't like my church because they allow coffee in the worship center. Oh, and they spill it on the Jones Memorial carpet. <laughs> right? Oh, why don't you come to my church? Because we don't allow that sort of shenanigans in my thing. When we, when we gather to worship, we are all serious. We respect the facility, right? <sighs> I don't like my church because it starts at this particular time. Well, I tell you what, come to my church because we start at the proper time. Right? I mean, have you ever, I mean, I get it. It's okay to be proud of your church, but let's, be under, let's, let's understand this. We are not the one true church. And if we really believe that every single church out there or denomination, which is why we have denominations, is because they believe they were the one true church. The other ones were doing it wrong. That's even, and by the way, non-denominational churches aren't immune from this either. Many non, I'm not saying all, but many non-denominational churches start because they believe that they are the one true church. They don't know how to baptize people. We're going to show them how to baptize. They don't know how to worship. We're going to show them how to worship. This is what the church was all about. They don't know what small groups, we're going to show them what small groups are. You kind of get big-headed about it. But here's the, here's the really bad thing that can happen. is If you believe and buy into this idea that you are the one true church, you begin to think that you get to have the keys to the kingdom. And say, Jesus, I got this. Let me have those keys. I can, I can manage this door just fine. You know what? Oftentimes we do that door if we got the keys ourselves. We shut it. Let's go for judgment because salvation, oh. But by the way, let me just make another point about how much we think we're the one true church. Have any of you encountered the Apostles' Creed? It's one of the most ancient creeds in the church itself. There's a line in there as you read the Apostles' I almost thought about having it up here today, but we're a non-creedal church. Why? Because the Catholics were doing it wrong. <laughs> and we say the New Testament is our creed. That's what we say because that's the Jesus way. But there is a line in the Apostles' Creed that says this, we believe in one holy apostolic Catholic church. Us Protestants kind of shiver at that Catholic word. You know what Catholic means? Universal. Universal. That's all that that means. It's okay. Apostolic, that we are from the line of the apostles. And so you know what every denomination, every church tries to do? It tries to actually say and figure out, oh, we're all apart. We can, fit you. We can trace our lineage all the way back to one of the apostles. So we're the one true church. We do it all the time. And because we begin to do that, we begin to look at other churches and we begin to say things like, well, you're doing it wrong. We begin to judge other churches and say, you know what, you're out. You don't have it all together. You know what, you, you are not following the Jesus way. And we begin to make things like that and statements like that that are really, really judgmental. We do that all the time. And we may not even realize it. In fact, right now, I love the phrase that a lot of churches are using against other churches, is that you are compromising the gospel. Well, they use that phrase, some churches use that phrase to even take it to the nth degree that if there's a woman in ministry, a woman who might be preaching, well, you're compromising the gospel. Well, if you, if you are not using this particular version of the Bible, well, you're compromising the gospel. You know what I think? I, I, now, I, I don't know, I, compromising the gospel. Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus won. If a woman says that, 
okay, you're right, it's compromised, it's just not going to land. <laughs> Seriously? In, order, in other words, in order to, to preach the gospel, I've got to dress up in a coat and tie or, or look like this or, or you know, read from a particular version of the Bible. I tease about versions of the Bible. I give Randall a hard time. He's a King James guy. He's old school. He's looking mighty brethren today, if you haven't figured it out. That is a brethren beard right there. Which, by the way, FYI, a little historical fact for you. You know why they grew the beards that way with no mustache? Because they were protesting the war. And soldiers did this. And they would shave that off and say, no. Why? Because we're nonconformists. While the other churches are conformists, they're doing it wrong. <laughs> right? I mean, this is the stuff we do. This is, I mean, I talked about this a little bit. In the Brethren Church, or not in Anabaptism, and particularly in, in very conservative ones where women sit on one side and men sit on the other side, and women have to wear doilies on their heads because obviously not wearing those head coverings would be a distraction to the men. Well, do you know what they began to do? They began to get a little lacy with the head coverings. It was like Victoria's Secret for head coverings. <laughs> What's the point of wearing them? You can't make this stuff up. I'm serious. You cannot make this stuff up. That's what was going on here. Is this church thought, or this synagogue rather, thought because it was a part of the in crowd, it could decide who else was a part of the in crowd. We make statements against churches all of the time. There are churches, I think, I hope it's not true, that spend their entire time telling why other churches are wrong. That's a horrible way to live. I had one, I, I listened to one church where the pastor was going on and on and on about how evil the NIV is, how what a terrible translation the NIV is, and yet how his study notes are in there because he likened it to the Trojan horse. At least I can get in there and infiltrate the NIV. I, I don't get that. Hey, your study notes are in there. Praise Jesus. I don't care. By the way, I really don't care what version you use of the Bible. Just as long as you read the Bible. Amen? I don't care. Read the Bible. It's a wonderful book. Read the Bible. And you know what? It is so easy for us to fall into that trap of being judgmental and saying who is in and who is out. In fact, that's one of the things that the church, or in general, and churches in particular, really get in trouble for is making statements and declaring final judgment on people and saying, well, you're in and you're out, right? You're in and you're out. By the way, you all, congratulations, you're in. <laughs> you all are out. Shouldn't have worn that red shirt today. <laughs> right? I mean, it's ridiculous. We do it all the time. It is so easy for us to fall in a judgmental pattern and we do it not only because we think we know what Jesus wants, but we also do it, and this is something we're not really willing to confess, because we don't have to focus on our own shortcomings, our own sins. So let's focus on the sins of others. That's much better. Don't you agree? Oh, I'll compare myself to anybody any day, right? Whew, at least I'm not doing that, right? We judge people that way, and it is awful. It is awful. And by the way, I too have fallen into this trap and have sometimes have 
gotten caught up into this judgmentalism. A few weeks ago, and now some of you are going to be like, oh, I want to go listen to this message. A few weeks ago, I made a statement that um, was judgmental. And the statement went something along about vaccinations, about something along the lines that um, if anyone comes up to me and says, I don't have enough, you know, where's your faith? I said something like, and I would respond, where's your brain? Some of you might remember I said that. That was a bad statement. That was not a good thing to say. And I apologize. That was not what I was trying to convey, but it felt good to say it. It felt good to say it. What I really wanted to try to convey is to not judge. And in the point of trying to say not judge, I judged. That's how sinful I am. And I apologize for that. What I wanted to convey simply was, for those of us Christians who choose not to get vaccinated, and that is your choice, and you look at Christians who choose to get vaccinated and judge them as though they don't have faith, that's offensive. This is not a faith issue. And for those Christians who choose to get vaccinated and look at Christians who choose not to and think, where's your brain? That is also equally offensive. And that's not right. That's not right. And so I do apologize. That was not my intention. But I got a good laugh out of it. (laughs) It was not my intention. My intention was to simply say to us, stop judging. Stop judging. We don't get to decide who is in and who is out. By the way, I love the fact, and this is just metaphorical, but I love the fact we used to close these doors. I'm fine closing these doors, but I love the fact that these doors are open because it just communicates, I think, come on in. We welcome anyone. Anyone. It does not matter who you are. It does not matter what you believe. It does not matter how you are dressed. We prefer you're dressed. Please. Okay? Can we just have a good, you know, baseline here? Okay? That matters. But come. Come. And by the way, brothers and sisters, may we never be tempted to say to someone, you are going to hell. Trust me. You and I do not want that responsibility And by God's grace, he doesn't give it. Amen? The next time we might be tempted, we're watching someone who might be living a different lifestyle, might have a different political belief, might have a different way of looking at things, and we are tempted to say to them, that person is going to hell. May we in that moment be convicted and reminded that we don't hold the keys to the kingdom. It's Jesus. I don't know about you, but I am certainly glad I don't get my way on this, but rather that Jesus has the final say. Period. Period. Now, I think I've talked enough about that. No, I haven't. I'll talk about it later. Not today, but in another message. Let me go on. Here's the interesting thing. Because Jesus has the final say, here is what he says, being in verse 10 of Revelation, and this is where we'll finish the passage out. Because you have kept my word of perseverance. I love that. Do you ever think of the fact that we, brothers and sisters, 
that the gospel is a gospel that is received by that wonderful gift of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And in doing so, we have to understand that it is a race. It is a long race, a race that we can so easily drop out of. It is, can be so easily given up on. And he says this, this word of perseverance, my word of perseverance. And Jesus says this, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who live on the earth. In other words, there will be judgment. And when that happens, Jesus promises us, you'll be protected because you persevered. You'll be in because I said so. I don't know about you, but I, I think the most surprising thing about heaven for me, well, actually heaven for me is a, a, a temporary place. We will ultimately be back here on earth, a new creation, as Revelation shares later on. But we're not going to go into those passages because those passages create a lot of angst among us. Okay? But just know this, I'm right and you're wrong. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Wherever we may dwell for eternity, here's the thing. Here's the thing about that. I think the most surprising thing is who I will see there. Who I thought, you got in? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Truly, I think that's the most surprising thing. I think, I know other people want to ask Jesus some questions. I think the most surprising thing is, Jesus, what's the deal, man? How'd he get in? How'd she get in? Right? Rather than really understanding the fact and asking ourselves, is how did I get in? How did I get in? Jesus says this, and so I am coming quickly. Yeah, quickly is a relative term, isn't it? <laughs> Jesus, we're still waiting. We're here 2,000 years later. But until he comes, he says this, hold firmly to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Let me just say this, and I think what is true in this church in Philadelphia is true for us here at Summit Ridge. We are not a big church. Philadelphia was not a big church. You know what? It's okay. Jesus loves small churches as much as he loves the big churches. And let's not always confuse the fact that just because a big church is big, that God blesses that church and a small church is small because God has cursed it. Don't ever make that equation. By the way, in this country, there's about 350,000 congregations. More than half of them more than half of them are less than 65 people. Small churches are like ants. There's a lot of us, and we can easily overpower an elephant if we got together. Right? We all have a unique role. We all have unique gifts. We might be thinking, oh, I wish we had that gift because that church has it. Or I wish we had that skill because that church has it. Or I wish we had those kinds of people because that, those churches have those kinds of people. Stop. God has put us here in this church for a specific purpose and reason. And he has gifted us with specific talents and gifts that are found in each and every one of us. And let's hold firmly to that. Let's praise Jesus for that. And let's continue to move and press on because of that. And he says this, verse 12, to the one who overcomes. I love that. Here it is. I will make him a pillar in my temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven 
from my God and my new name. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, if we persevere, church, guess what happens? We are a pillar in the New Jerusalem. And not only that, we are identified with His name. We have His identity on us. That's the crown. That's the beautiful future that we have. But until we get there, we have to persevere. We have to press on. We have to keep going. Jesus has this. So my encouragement to us all is let's continue to be the church. Let's continue to be the church. Let's praise Jesus for what he has done, for what he has given us, and let us be thankful that he is with us as we continue to strive to do and be the people he has called us to be. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I am so grateful that you are the creator, the author, and the perfecter of our faith that you are the sustainer, that you are the one who put into place your church, whom you identify as your bride that you gave your life up for. Father, I know that we are not a perfect church here at Summit Ridge. You know that better than any single one of us do. And I know, Jesus, we are a small church, and you know that better than any of us do. And Jesus, I pray that instead of of just maybe wondering why we aren't bigger, maybe wondering why we aren't getting all, you know, people rushing in through the doors all the time. I pray, Jesus, that we would also take time to understand and praise you and thank you that you have brought people here who are here right now, whether in person or online, who are joining us, who have gifts, talents that are just unbelievable to help build your kingdom. May we never forget our purpose, Jesus. May we never forget who holds the keys and who doesn't. And Jesus, in the end, may we, all, may we be all about making sure that you have the final say. It's in your holy and precious name I pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.